while ago we sang, uh, there is a fountain filled with blood, and there was reference made to the dying thief, rejoice to see thy fountain in thy day. I think we all remember that the dying thief wasn't by himself, right? There was Jesus, um, then there was the dying thief, and then there was, I guess you might call him the blasphemous thief, who was also dying, but who was wasting his breath insulting Jesus, mocking Jesus. And you wonder, what spelled the difference between that thief who said, do you not fear God? We're hanging here for our sins. And then he called out to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What was the difference between that guy and the other guy who said, if you really are the Christ, save yourself, and by the way, take us with you. And it's always a puzzling thing, isn't it? Remember when I went to seminary, I had the privilege of being taught by a man named Jeff Adams. He and his wife were a wonderful, godly couple. They had two sons. Both of them grew up in the church. Both of them grew up in the same godly home. One son is a solid believer. He actually was my church history and Greek professor. Their other son is not a believer. And again, you wonder, why is that? Well, that question arises in Daniel chapter 5. In fact, the whole book, uh, the whole section of Daniel chapter 2 up to chapter 7 is set up to raise that question. So, Daniel chapter 5. We may find ourselves a bit disoriented as we come to Daniel chapter 5 because it opens with this. King Belshazzar made a great feast for thousands of his lord and drank wine in front of the thousand. Like, who? Who is this party boy? Well, I hope you realize the inspired author is not interested in giving us a full chronology of events during Daniel's lifetime. The inspired author has carefully selected specific events in order to demonstrate that God is in control regardless of all appearances and circumstances. That is the sovereignty of God in a nutshell. But if we look at um, historical sources, it would seem that after Nebuchadnezzar's death, he was eventually succeeded by a man named Nabonidus. After multiple assassinations and conspiracies, Nabonidus became the emperor. But there was a problem. Nabonidus was a devotee of the moon god named Sin. And that got him into trouble with the priests of Marduk in Babylon. And as a result, Nabonidus decided to spend most of his time in a place called Tema, which is part of modern-day Saudi Arabia. That was about 500 miles from Babylon. And to mind the store in Babylon, 
he put his son in charge. This son is the son or the person named King Belshazzar. And that's the backdrop, the origin story, if you will, of King Belshazzar. Now, by the time the events of Daniel 5 is taking place, or are taking place, Nebuchadnezzar had been dead for about 10 years, give or take. And unfortunately, the Babylonian Empire was rapidly losing ground. In fact, by the time Daniel 5 is going on, the Persians had been besieging Babylon for two years. Imagine a two-year siege. And in fact, before this banquet of Belshazzar, Nabonidus had surrendered to the Persians. You might say that Belshazzar and Babylon were the last holdout to the Persians. And to trash talk the stinky Persians, Belshazzar holds the banquet. It is the reckless act of an arrogant braggart. See, Belshazzar was confident that Babylon was safe. The walls were way too high to climb, and they were too strong to break down. They had ample food to survive the siege, and there was even space inside the walls of Babylon to grow food, just in case. And if you wonder about water, well, the Euphrates River flowed through the city, so they had more than enough water. And as far as Belshazzar was concerned, there is absolutely no way the Persians could take Babylon. And so to mock the enemy at the gates, they partied. And party they did. In fact, we are told in verse 2, Belshazzar even had the gold and silver goblets from the temple of Jerusalem brought out. It was Belshazzar's way of comparing himself to Nebuchadnezzar, who had conquered Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar had taken the goblets as plunder, but he had not dared to use them because he thought that those silver and gold goblets were too precious. They were offered to Marduk at that time. And so by using them, Belshazzar was claiming to be greater than Nebuchadnezzar. You might even venture to say that because Nebuchadnezzar had acknowledged Yahweh as the sovereign Lord in chapter 4, Belshazzar was also making the claim that his gods were better than Yahweh because we are told in verse 4 that they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone with those very goblets. Now, whatever... Belshazzar's motives, Belshazzar wasn't just committing idolatry. He was also blaspheming God. He was disrespecting the living God by using the goblets that were dedicated to Yahweh to worship his false gods. Now, yes, let's agree, his actions are reprehensible. But let us not judge him as if we are blameless. See, Tremper Longman points out, blasphemy is the act of dishonoring God through speech and actions. But blasphemy is not just defacing a church or a cross. It is a misuse of any part of God's creation. 
And since all of life belongs to God, I think we have to recognize that we are just as guilty as Belshazzar of blasphemy when we take our God-given abilities and we use them for our selfish ends, for self-gratification, rather than seeking to glorify God. Anything short of that is blasphemous. Or, as Tremper Longman goes on, an assault against a fellow human being is an act of blasphemy. After all, we are created in the image of God. An angry word spoken against a fellow believer is an act of blasphemy. After all, Christians are all temples of the Holy Spirit. And mind you, you don't have to say it out loud, right? You just have to think it. But let's go a step further. The destruction of the environment for selfish purposes is an act of blasphemy because the land, the air, the seas are each the creation of our holy God. The point of what I'm, the point I'm making is that each in our own ways, we are all guilty of spitting in God's eye. And we are all worthy of judgment, just like Belshazzar. And judgment does come. We are told in the text that as soon as Belshazzar and his cronies desecrate the golden vessels from God's temple, a human hand suddenly appears and writes on the wall by the lampstand so that everybody could see it. Can you imagine the sight? A disembodied hand starts writing on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, Parson, talk about creepy, right? In fact, it was so creepy, Belshazzar by this time was a little drunk, but when he saw that sight, he just sobered straight up. His face turned pale, his knees started knocking together, and he lost bladder control. Thankfully, he had robes, so nobody could see it. Oops. Oh, all they could see was the stain or the water flowing on the floor. And he wanted to know, what does this mean? So he summons the wise men of Babylon. This is a familiar theme, right? They summon the wise men of Babylon, and he even offers a reward. I will make the one who could interpret the writing the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But just as in previous times, no one could interpret the vision, or the writing. And so Belshazzar's terror began to reach panic proportions. You've, you've all been, we've all been scared, right? Some of us go on roller coasters to do that. I don't know why, but you know, you're starting to hyperventilate. You're starting to freak out publicly. And Belshazzar didn't know what to do. Enter the queen mother, verse 10. We don't exactly know who she was. She could have been the wife of Nabonidus, that is to say, Belshazzar's mother, or she could have even been the wife of Nebuchadnezzar, um, a woman named Nitocris. We don't know who she was. What we do know is she could not interpret the writing either, but she knew who to ask. Verse 11 she tells Belshazzar to call on Daniel, who had served Nebuchadnezzar well. Let's, let's read the introduction to Daniel. Verse 11. 
There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. And you wonder, well, why, why didn't they call him first in the first place? Well, it's not just that Belshazzar was drunk and not thinking straight. It seems that Belshazzar didn't really like Daniel very much. See, in verse 14 and in verse 16, even in his desperation, Belshazzar goes out of his way to embarrass Daniel. First of all, he refers to him as an exile from Judah. Look at verse 13. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom, my king, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. It was to put him down. Oh, you're just one of those refugees that we captured. you just one of our prisoners. And then he goes on, I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you. You notice that I have heard. I'm not sure about you, but whatever. They tell me that you're pretty good. So prove yourself to me. And well, Daniel himself seems rather salty. If you find it in verse 17, he says, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Whatever, boss. He is clearly not impressed by Belshazzar. Look at what he says in verse 18. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And you realize Daniel, Daniel's response wasn't personal. It was a matter of principle. Daniel was trying to tell the king, I'm not for sale, man. He would tell the truth regardless of the consequences. He had no interest in currying favor with Belshazzar. 
If you go back over it, you realize that Daniel is pointing out that for all of Belshazzar's posturing, he is nowhere near the man Nebuchadnezzar was. Nebuchadnezzar was truly powerful and had accomplished much because the true and living God had made him great. But even Nebuchadnezzar, when he became proud, verse 20 and 21, God humbled him. And he points out, Belshazzar, you knew this. And yet you did not humble yourself. Instead, you chose to reject Yahweh and you chose to spit in God's eye. You dared to insult him by using the temple goblets to worship gods. Gods that could not see, hear, or understand. Gods that could not interpret what was written on the wall. Useless, worthless gods. Imagine that. He refused to honor the God who held his very life in his hands. Daniel was pointing out to Belshazzar, to his face, his utter ridiculous folly. And with that rebuke, Daniel interprets the writing for Belshazzar. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign. Tekel, you have been weighed and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And we are told in verse 29, Daniel received the rewards Belshazzar offered, but uh, it didn't matter much. Because we are told in verse 31, that very night, the Persians took the city that Belshazzar had thought impregnable, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. According to historians, the Persians had diverted the Euphrates River so that in diverting the river, they lowered the depth, they lowered the waters, and so they were able to walk on the riverbed under the city walls. Remember, the river flowed through the city. So when they lowered the city walls, uh, they, they lowered the water level, they were able to walk. It, it went to thigh deep, so they were able to walk under the walls into the city. And while Belshazzar was having a drinking party, well, the Persians were infiltrating the city and taking over. It's interesting because that's exactly God. Remember Daniel chapter 2, God had told Nebuchadnezzar many years before that the Babylonian Empire would fall to an inferior power. True enough. Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. And in verse 30, we are told that God executed his well-deserved judgment on Belshazzar. We are told in verse 30 that that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Judgment fell. And this account really challenges each one of us to take the judgment of God seriously. See, we all take sin lightly. We, we're way too blasé. 
In fact, nowadays, sin is calorific, right? It's sinfully delicious or decadent. We, we fail to see our sin as an affront to God. That's really what sin is about. It is about insulting the very God who holds you, your life in your hand. And so we don't grieve over a sin the way we should. But I hope we all realize that just like Belshazzar, we have all fallen short of God's perfect standard. And all of us, by our selfish ways, have insulted this holy God who holds our breath in his hands. And his righteousness and justice demand satisfaction. And so as the psalmist said in Psalm 2, we need to run to Christ to take refuge in his Son who alone can save us from the wrath to come. But I hope that as we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, that very cross sweeps away all of our excuses for our sin. It sweeps away all our attempts to mitigate our guilt. Because the cross of Christ demonstrates that our sin, your sin and my sin, are so horrible, so loathsome, so filthy, so disgusting, that only the death of the incarnate Son of God could satisfy the righteous demands of God's justice. And His righteousness is so unattainably sublime that only the perfect obedience of Jesus, the Son of God, that fully pleased the Father, could make us acceptable to God. However good you might be, however nice you might be, it's not good enough. And we have no place to run except to Jesus Christ. And thankfully, he stands ready to receive us. That's why the psalmist ends in Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that's why Daniel reminds Belshazzar of Nebuchadnezzar. Blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. That's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did, didn't he? Nebuchadnezzar learned that God humbles the proud but shows grace to those who cast themselves upon his mercy. Now, one of the features of this passage is that the memory of Nebuchadnezzar overshadows the story, doesn't it? Belshazzar is known as the son of Nebuchadnezzar, and David brings the specter of Nebuchadnezzar back in comparison with Belshazzar. And that is deliberate. The, the author actually wants us to compare Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, as I mentioned, if you could show the structure, the structure of the Aramaic section from Daniel 2 verse 4 to chapter 7 verse 28 is designed to focus our attention on Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. It, it's, it's a contrast that is meant to bring clarity. See, both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar were equally guilty of pride, of blasphemy, and of idolatry. And yet the question arises, why was Nebuchadnezzar given ample opportunity to repent? Why did God pursue Nebuchadnezzar till he came to faith? 
why did God judge Belshazzar the very night that Daniel confronted him? Well, I think Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 answers the question. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Simply put, it is God's prerogative. God is under no obligation to extend mercy. God is sovereign in salvation. Neither Nebuchadnezzar nor Belshazzar deserved mercy. I mean, isn't that why it's called grace? Or in God's own words, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, please understand, I'm not trying to scare or offend anyone. My goal here, and I think the text's intention here, is to make us recognize the lavishness of God's grace against the backdrop of judgment. We all are Belshazzars and Nebuchadnezzars, worthy of condemnation, but God in his mercy has chosen to show us grace. Ephesians chapter 2, we all are children of wrath. That is to say, we all are objects of God's wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, raised us up together with Christ. We who have put our faith in Jesus have no reason for boasting and the fact that we are believers, the fact that we have experienced this mercy should actually humble us and teach us to be grateful. Because again, we are just as damned as Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, and yet God saved us. And you might object, but, well, I put my faith in Jesus. Yes, I agree. We are responsible to put our faith in Jesus Christ. But I hope you also understand that our ability to trust in Jesus Christ comes from God. It's not because you're more spiritual, you're smarter, you're more intelligent, you're more well-read, you're more aware of your own sinfulness. No. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 reminds us that we are all blind. We are all blinded by Satan. In fact, we are willfully blind. And the only way for us to put our faith in Jesus is for God to open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. Or as Ephesians 2 would say, we were dead in sin. Dead people don't respond, right? You can do whatever. He's dead. Not mostly dead. He's all dead. We're all dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, raised us to life so that we would put our faith in Jesus Christ. Because faith is a gift from our sovereign God. And so with Isaac Watts, we look forward to heaven's banquet and we sing these wonderful words. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, 
Each of us cried with thankful tongues. Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I to me made to hear the voice and enter Wilder's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? It was the same love that drew the feast, that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Brothers and sisters, it's not us. But for the grace of God, we would be worse than Belshazzar. But God's sovereign choice to show us unconditional love has made all the difference in our lives. And this love poses a real challenge for you and me. Brian Chapel points out that the book of Daniel was written to be read by God's people. They are yet being disciplined in captivity for their previous idolatry. And while the people of Israel may rejoice that their enemy, Belshazzar, gets his just desserts, they cannot avoid the plain evidence that their sin has also resulted in much pain. And he applies it to us. To us has been given the fulfillment of covenant promises in the provision of God's own Son who died for our sins. Surely it is foolish to think that we could now take the shed blood of Jesus and smear it over our continuing greed, lust, and anger with impunity. Catherine the Great once said, God will forgive, it's his job. Well, with all due respect, we ought never take God's love for granted. As Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, we are God's workmanship. Let's start with verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared for us beforehand. See, that same love that saved us should spur us to live for Christ and talk about him with our friends and loved ones. See, the wonder of God's grace is that the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. That's why we're saved, isn't it? It is not because God found anything worth loving in you and me. God determined to love us. And in determining to love us, He creates 